So today's sermon, today's message is about, you ready for it? Today's message is about sex. That's right. It's about sex and everybody took out their earbuds. That's right. Which is part of why I'm offering today as double attendance credit. Right? Because For one, I think this is an incredibly important topic, and I wanted as many of you here as possible to hear about it. But also, if you don't like what I have to say, then by the end of it, at least you got two credits and not one, right? Amen to that. Right now, I'm going to pray, because we all desperately need God's help. (laughs) Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, it is true that we need your help this morning. It's also true that we need your help every morning that we hear your word preached. Every time we hear your word preached, Lord, we need your help to properly understand it. And I understand I'm taking on a difficult and sensitive topic this morning, Lord. And so I pray for me in the midst of this that I would get out of the way and that it would only be you speaking through me. And I pray for each and every one of our students and staff and faculty here, Lord. I've already been praying that you would be preparing their hearts and minds for this message and that they would uh, hear what they need to hear out of it, Lord, and that you would uh, speak deeply to their hearts um, and draw them closer to you in the midst of this. Amen. Well, The Atlantic earlier this year, really loved The Atlantic, it ran an article that fascinated me and it was entitled, Why Are Young People Having So Little Sex? Interesting, right? Well, here's how the article begins. Uh, These should be Boom times for sex. The share of Americans who say that sex between unmarried adults is not wrong at all is at an all-time high. The article then goes on to list a ton of other reasons why these should be boom times for sex, concluding the opening paragraph with this. Our culture has never been more tolerant of sex in just about every permutation, but despite all this, American teenagers and young adults are having less sex. It's not just young people either. Broader research into the sex lives of all Americans shows that everyone is having less sex than before. Now, now maybe you disagree with me already. Maybe you're thinking right now, I, I don't know, that, that research doesn't match up with the people that I know, with the circles that I run in, or even with my own life. And to be sure, lots of people, young or not, are still having sex, of course. But, but the research is solid and it doesn't lie. Which leads us to a really important question this morning. Why? Why does sex seem to be on the decline? Well, the articles and research that I looked at offered numerous suggestions, but I wonder, I wonder about another that wasn't mentioned. I wonder if our culture's offer of the benefits of unlimited sexual freedom is a classic example of over-promising and under-delivering. Overpromise and underdeliver. I mean, we've all been to a party that was way overhyped, haven't we? You pull up outside, you're excited, you're ready to go, you're anticipating great things, and then you walk in only to find out that everything is a major bummer. You walk in only to find out that you're at a Michael Scott hotel party. <laughs> Ain't no party like a Scranton party. And I just wonder. Isn't it possible that our culture's approach to sexuality is a bit like an overhyped party, promising an amazing payoff, but failing ultimately to deliver? Might there be a better way? Well, here's what I believe we're going to discover in our passage from the Bible this morning in Genesis chapter 2. Here it is. 
Sex is God's good idea. Sex is God's good idea. And as we unpack this, as we unpack this statement, I also believe that we're going to come across two rather surprising truths within God's design for sex. Two surprising truths. Here's the first one. You don't have to have sex to be fully human. You don't have to have sex to be fully human. Now, you might think this is a strange place to begin a message on sexuality, but let's look at our passage this morning. Genesis 2 will begin in verse 18. Well, then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, you might still think this is strange because my point is not yet obvious, but if we step back just a touch, and if we look closely at the verses that are around this one, Genesis 2.18, then you'll start to see what I'm getting at. First, let's back up to Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This verse is our cultural mandate. This is our invitation from God to join him in his good, creative work. It is where we see that, importantly, we were created with work in mind. And for our purposes this morning, it is important not to forget that this frames the backdrop to the first verse of our passage this morning, Genesis 2.18. Keep that in mind, and now let's keep reading past verse 18 to verses 19 and 20. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. Do you see it here too? Adam's vocational task of gardening with God is immediately following Genesis 2.18 as well as being right before it. I mean, this is actually incredible. One of the main reasons why it is not good for man to be alone, which is the statement that we find in Genesis 2.18, one of the main reasons that that's true is because there is a lot of really good and important work to do. This is incredible. Because you see, when we read Genesis 2.18, we too often strip that part of it out, and instead we read it through a romantic relational lens. See, we tend to think that God got sad when he saw that Adam's relationship status on Facebook was single, and so he decided to do something about it. Oh, poor little Adam doesn't have a girlfriend, a fiancé, a wife. I better do something about that, but no. That isn't the case at all. Instead, what is true is this. The Bible does not teach that you were created to find a spouse. The Bible does not teach that you were created ultimately for romance. The Bible does not teach that the chief aim of human experience is to find and have your own personal love story. It just doesn't. Now please hear me correctly. The Bible does teach that each and every one of us is created for relationship. We are built and made in the image of a relational God. And so when God says that it is not good for man to be alone, part of it, of course, means that there is a relational deficit for Adam. And further, it is, of course, true and obvious within the story in Genesis 2 this morning that the way that Adam's relational deficit was paid was by the creation of his wife, Eve. 
And it is, of course, still true today that marriage is an incredibly important institution that God uses in many people's lives, including my own. But we have to see this. We have to start here. Singleness is not a result of our rebellion against God. It is not a result of our sinning against God. In the mind of God, from the very beginning, both marriage and singleness are equally viable and important stations in life, which is a truth that we should not gloss over this morning because the vast majority of you, as college students, are still single. Of course it isn't wrong to desire a spouse. Of course it isn't wrong to seek after a spouse. Of course it isn't wrong to actually get married. But if I'm right about the possibility within God's economy of the single life, then that desire for a spouse, that seeking of a spouse, it does not have to dominate your life anymore. You can be patient in that journey and trust God knowing you got to hear this, knowing that he is not less pleased with you because you're not married yet. I also have to say, by, by way of repentance and apology, the church has too often failed single people and not served them in the ways they need and deserve. The church has too often idolized marriage and family to the exclusion of singles. The church has too often flattened singleness, not recognizing that each story of singleness is unique and beautiful to God. And the church has neglected to remember the surprising truth that we're unpacking right now, that you do not have to have sex to be fully human. Genesis 1 and 2 don't exclude single folks, and we should not either. Because again, notice what God doesn't say. He doesn't say it is not good that Adam does not have a sexual partner. He does not say it is not good that Adam does not have romance in his life. No, he says it is not good that Adam is alone. It is not good that Adam is not experiencing human intimacy. Intimacy, intimacy, that's a really important word for us this morning because you see, deep down, that is what each of us is desperate for. Intimacy is what each of our hearts beat for, is what each of us longs for. Ultimately, it is not sex that we are after, it is intimacy. It is the joy of knowing someone else fully and the joy and peace of being fully known. And sex is just one of the many ways that we experience intimacy within this life, which is why we had to start here this morning. You do not have to have sex to be fully human. Uh, consider this with me. The person of Jesus, right, who was both 100% God and 100% man, he was, Jesus was, the most fully human person to ever walk the face of this earth because he was without sin, because he was without brokenness, because he never once strayed from God's good and beautiful design. And yet, and this is the incredible part, Jesus never married. Jesus never had sex. Do we need more convincing than that? Do we? Well, here's one more. This surprising truth that you don't have to have sex to be fully human is why it is okay, more than okay, in fact, that one day none of us will ever have sex again. See, I'm willing to bet that it's been a while or maybe ever since you've really stopped to think about that, but, but that's true. Jesus himself clearly states 
in Matthew 22:30 that in the new heavens and the new earth, when Jesus has made everything new again, Jesus states clearly, they will never marry nor be given in marriage. And folks, no marriage means no sex. Now, maybe that sounds terrible to you. Uh, you might be thinking, goodness, no sex in heaven? Not sure that I really want to go there now that I know that. But on this point, author C.S. Lewis is so helpful. He describes a young boy who loves chocolate more than anything in the world. Upon being taught about the beauties and pleasures of sex, the boy asks, in all seriousness, can you eat chocolate while you have sex? And the kind adult leading the conversation might wrestle with the right answer for the young boy, thinking along these lines. In vain, you might tell him that the reason why lovers in their raptures don't bother about chocolates is that they have something better to think of. You see, the boy knows chocolate. He does not know the positive thing that excludes it. We are in the same position. We know the sexual life we do not know, except in glimpses, the other thing which, in heaven, will leave no room for it. No room for it. That seems even unbelievable, doesn't it? Almost like it can't be true. But what if it is? What if the new heavens and the new earth is so good, is so wonderful, is so incredible, is beyond anything that you could ever think and imagine? What if it's that good that it's not even a big deal that we don't have sex anymore? What if? What if? You don't have to have sex to be fully human. But... We have to keep moving this morning. We still have another surprising truth to discover. And Jesus' link between marriage and sex in Matthew 22:30 introduces us to our next surprising truth. Here it is. You do have to be fully married to have sex. So, so point one, you, you don't have to have sex to be fully human. But point two, equally important, you do have to be fully married to have sex. Now, on the face of it, this isn't functionally true. Right? People who aren't married have sex with one another all the time. But this morning, what we are discussing, what we are talking about, what we are unpacking is the surprising truths that we discover within God's design. And friends, like it or not, this is God's design. We discover it plainly within our passage for this morning. Look back with me at Genesis 2. We'll start in verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become, here's our reference to sex, they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Friends, in these verses, we clearly discover God's design for sexuality. Here it is. Sex should only occur between one man and one woman who are united in marriage for life. Sex should only occur between one man and one woman who are united together in marriage for life. And, and I know, I know this seems old-fashioned and regressive. You might be thinking, come on, Paul, it's, it's 2019. Haven't we moved past this? Like, get with it already. But let me, let me point you back to just 
One verse, one part of one verse. It's still on the screen. It's the last sentence. And the man, Adam, and his wife, Eve, were both naked and were not ashamed. Do you see that? This is incredible. No shame, not even a little. Is that your story related to your sexuality? I know it's not mine. All of our lives have moments of deep shame when it comes to sex, and those moments often feel like they can haunt us forever. But you see, God did not create us to experience shame with regards to sex. What happens is that when we sidestep God's design for sex, we throw the door open and invite shame to have a seat on the couch. So, so go with me. Go with me just for a second. What if, and I know this is a really mountain-sized big if, but what if, what if God's design for sexuality is the pathway to eliminating the shame that we so often feel in this arena? What if God's design isn't limiting and restrictive, but is actually incredibly freeing and and liberating? What if, what if? Let me clue you in on why I think God's design is set up the way that it is. Sex is more than just physical. Sex is more than just physical. It is physical, of course, but it's more than that, too. Pastor and author Andy Stanley writes in his brilliant book, New Rules for Love, Sex, and Dating, he writes this, Sex isn't just physical. At any time you make a statement that includes the phrase, my body, you acknowledge that there's more to you than a physical body. There's a my in there somewhere. And as perhaps you've already discovered, your sexuality is inexorably linked to the non-physical part of you. So because sex isn't just physical, it carries with it incredible power. Incredible, enormous power. And I wonder if you know that too. I imagine you've seen that power play out in real life. I wonder if someone you love, or or maybe you yourself, has been deeply wounded by someone who misused sex as a weapon. I wonder if, if someone you love has come to you and said, I need to tell you something that I've never told anyone before, and then proceeded to trust you with a story of sexual assault or sexual exploitation. I wonder if someone you know or maybe you yourself has found themselves trapped in a sex-related addiction. A sex-related addiction. You see, these things happen. They happen because sex is more than just physical. Giving it incredible power. And this is true because each and every time sex occurs, a one flesh uniting takes place. We read about this in our passage, verse 24, a man leaves his father and mother, holds fast to his wife, and they become one flesh. In sex, two people become one where there was two before. There is now a new creation, a unified oneness that didn't exist before. This is incredibly significant and has remained at the core of God's design for sexuality since the very beginning. We see it here at the very beginning In Genesis 2, and we can trace it throughout all of Scripture, it's not only in Genesis 2, but we find Jesus affirming this one flesh principle when he speaks about marriage in Matthew 19. And the Apostle Paul picks up on this one flesh idea, and he applies it 
to one of the many sexual problems that the church in Corinth was having, having sex with prostitutes. He says in 1 Corinthians 6.16, Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. And what's more, this vitally important one flesh reality actually points to the inseparable union between God and his chosen people. Let me say that again. I I know it sounds strange, but it is actually incredibly beautiful. The one flesh reality in sex points to the inseparable union between God and his chosen people. Both marriage and sex are but a picture of the ultimate uniting between God and his people, which tells us, which reminds us, which teaches us that sex is not at the center of the universe. So often we treat it as though it is. Sex isn't at the, begin, at the center of the universe. God is. The Bible opens. It doesn't say, in the beginning, sex. It says, in the beginning, God. Sex is but a picture of the union between God and his people. And one day, We, as his chosen people, will get to be with him in a perfect, unified relationship. This is revelation. They will be my people and I will be their God. You see, sex and marriage are both but a fuzzy picture of that eventual reality, which is why they are given to one another and why they are not meant to be separated. Andy Stanley again, speaking about this one flesh uniting power of sex. Sex has a uniting quality. If you apply, remove, reapply, and remove an adhesive, it begins to lose its adhesiveness. As difficult as this may be for you to accept, the same thing happens with your sexuality. Every time that you have sex with a different partner, you apply, remove, and then reapply this powerful but somewhat fragile relational uniter. Eventually, your sexual experience will begin to lose its stickiness, The way you'll know is because sex will begin to lose its significance. So what is the way forward? Given the surprising truth that in God's design, you do have to be fully married to have sex. Well, there is much that we could say, but let's look at just two implications. Two implications. First, number one, sex within marriage. Yes. Sex within marriage. Yes, we've... We've talked at length about how the marriage covenant is required for sex, but we should not forget that sex is vital for a healthy marriage. Sex is a beautiful covenant renewal ceremony given to us by God. It is is important for married couples to have sex regularly, for it physically reminds them of the spiritual oneness that they enjoy. Now, of course, sex within marriage is still difficult. There is still brokenness and challenge there too. The truth is that we carry our sexual brokenness with us into marriage. Saying I do does not fix all of our sexual problems so far from it. In fact, I believe that one of the worst disservices that we've given you, our young people, is to underteach this truth or to avoid it altogether. Instead, we have far too often preached a sexual prosperity gospel that promises unlimited sexual fulfillment when you get to marriage. Just wait. Just wait, we say, then everything will be great. Now, some of you may have heard that message growing up in youth groups. If you did, I'm sorry. That was not a right or a fair message about 
God's design for sexuality because you see, even within marriage, sex is not perfect. It's still tainted by sin, still broken, still often difficult. Yes, it is a wonderful gift given by God for the context of marriage, but that does not mean that it comes without challenges. Also, we should say, sex within marriage is is a yes, but within the yes, there are still some no's that ought to be observed. Any form, any form of sexual abuse is still a major no. Even within the yes of sex within marriage, from your spouse, no still means no. We should add to that list that is it inappropriate to hold sex as a punishment or to use it as a bargaining chip? That's not how sex was designed. Again, it is a gift from God. And so sex within marriage functions best when we remember that as its origin point. Sex has incredible potential to be very selfish and self-focused. But it will function best when you focus more upon what you can give to your spouse than upon what you can get from them. It's a gift, so use it that way. Okay, sex within marriage, yes. But our second implication is this. Sex outside of marriage, no. Sex outside of marriage, no. And the first thing, the very first thing that I want you to see related to this implication, it is that is, it is for your own good. It is for your own good. And I know it probably doesn't feel that way. I know that this seems restrictive in an unhelpful way, limiting, difficult, frustrating. But we cannot forget that God is not random. He is not arbitrary. God is the most measured and brilliant and intentional designer to have ever existed. When God builds something, when God designs something, it truly is best and it is for your own good to adhere to his design plans. Even if it seems like you and everybody else knows a better way. Here's Andy Stanley again on this point. When we ignore God's relational purpose for sex, when we rip sex out of its divinely designed relational context, we hurt ourselves. Even when there are no physical consequences, we hurt ourselves. Sexual sin is like no other sin because your sexuality bridges body and soul. Sexual sin undermines future intimacy. Sexual sin creates an obstacle to honesty. Sexual sin is the sin we will be most tempted to hide, the sin we will most likely try to smuggle into future relationships. Sexual sin eventually equates to self-inflicted pain, and I could go on and on. So yes, the New Testament teaches that sex is for married people, not because God is against sex, but because God is for you. God is for you. Don't miss that. Don't dampen that beautiful truth. God is for you. And so yes, sex is given exclusively to the marriage relationship, but that is for your own good. And it's interesting to me because nobody denies that there is a proper context for sex. We just disagree on what that context is. Isn't that true? Our culture today says that the proper context for sex is between two consenting adults. That's what the proper context for sex is. There is, our culture is even admitting there is a proper context for sex. There are some boundaries that even our culture, right, it's wrong. Our culture says that's not right for you to cheat on somebody else. 
It's certainly not right for that to happen between an adult and a child. There are, we just disagree on what the proper context is. But step back and look at where we are. Is it working? I don't know. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't we consider God's submission for the proper context for sex? Between one man and one woman, united in marriage for life. Which means that, that this no from God stands for all forms of sex outside of marriage. All forms. To begin a list, we would say that all of these are outside of God's design. Adultery, having sex with someone that's not your spouse. Pornography, whether on Netflix or otherwise. Sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend or fiancé. And same-sex sexual relationships. Now, very clearly, we could say an incredible amount about each of these, and we could add to this list as well, but this morning we simply don't have time. But I'm not avoiding these conversations, I promise. I want to have them, I really do. In fact, this morning's message is merely a foundation, a foundation of the teachings of God's design for sexuality that we can build upon in the future. And if you want to chat about these things more in person, reach out to me. Shoot me an email, set up a meeting. I'll discuss anything with you, I promise I will. But with our remaining time, I, I do want to focus in on one from that list. And not by way of singling it out as somehow any worse than any of the others. Not at all. All sexual sin outside of God's design receives an equal no from him. Without any weight in any direction. So we could have chosen any off this list for deeper examination to be sure. But this morning... Let's look a bit more at sex prior to marriage with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. The logic I often hear likens the decision of this to take this step to that of buying a car. That's something along the lines of, well, you wouldn't make that sort of financial investment without a test drive, would you? But you see, the problem with that line of thinking is that the foundation of a sex successful relationship, the foundation of a successful relationship is not chemistry or compatibility. Chemistry and compatibility are important, but they are not the foundation. The foundation of a successful relationship is commitment. It's promise. Because you see, the reality is that your spouse is going to change over time a lot. And so how do you know that you'll be compatible with the future version of your spouse? You don't. Thus the importance of the promises that you make to one another, the vows that you commit to. You say, I promise to stay with you no matter how you change. Promise, commitment forms the foundation for successful relationships, not compatibility. And sexually test driving your boyfriend or girlfriend is a bad idea because of all that we've already said about sex so far. It's more than just physical. It includes a one flesh uniting each and every time with it that carries incredible power. And today's hookup culture wants to ignore that truth. And we're paying the price to the great harm of ourselves. Maybe you felt that. Maybe you know that in your own story. As hard as it might be in this cultural moment, might it be worth considering another way? Might it be worth considering the benefits of embracing God's no to sex outside of marriage? Might it be? And listen, I, I'm not saying 
that sex outside of marriage won't feel good. I'm not saying that it might not be a wonderful experience. I've said nothing of the sort this morning. No, what instead we've seen from Genesis is that sex is incredibly powerful. And so again, it would stand to reason that a gift carrying with it as much power as sex does ought to have a proper context for its use. Think about receiving a powerful chainsaw as a gift for Christmas. You open it in the living room, dozens of your your friends and family members, immediate and extended, are around. You open this awesome, powerful gift of a chainsaw. You would know instinctively, immediately, not to fire it up and start using it right there in the living room, wouldn't you? Of course you would. Because a chainsaw is an insanely powerful gift and a living room full of your loved ones is not the right context for it. If you did that, if you fired it up in the living room and started using it, went after the coffee table, went after the Christmas tree. (laughs) Now, if you did that, you might get away without hurting someone. You might. You might get away without hurting someone, but why risk it? Why not just wait until you're outside in the woods with some trees to chop down? Why not just use the gift within its proper context? Now again, back to sex. I've said it over and over and over again. It is a powerful gift. And if you use it outside of its proper context, you might get away without hurting someone, without being hurt, at least initially. But eventually, hurt is bound to come. I mean, it's called the walk of shame for a reason, right? Mistakes will be made, regret will set in, and why? For what? A moment of pleasure, an evening of enjoyment, is that really worth it when there is a better way? When we see so powerfully and so beautifully in Genesis 2 that Adam and Eve related to their sexuality felt No, shame. If that's possible, I want it. What about you? If that's possible, I want it. What about you? And what God says is that his design for sex works best when we restrict it to its proper context, the marriage relationship between one man and one woman. You see, something powerful and mysterious happens when fiancés, when when a future husband and a future wife, when they, when they stand on the stage, when they stand on the platform on their wedding day, when they look at one another. Have you ever noticed that, right? At a wedding, the couple doesn't look at one another until they're ready to vow. They spend the first half, the first two-thirds of their ceremony, of their wedding ceremony, looking straight ahead at me, the preacher. And then I say in that significant and mysterious moment, turn to one another, face one another, take the other person's hands and make your vows, make your promises. And something in that moment mysteriously and significantly happens and then the pastor gets to say, and this this is my favorite part, I've said it 25 times, 25 times I've stood on the stage and performed a wedding ceremony and I get to say each and every time, in the name of the Father and the Son, And the Holy Spirit, I now pronounce you husband and wife. What God has joined together, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And in that moment, something mysterious and significant happens that unlocks the glorious gift of sex. Your serious relationship doesn't unlock it. Your strong feelings of love don't unlock it. Your promise ring doesn't unlock it. Your engagement ring doesn't unlock it. Your 
Swiping right doesn't unlock it. Your living together in the same home doesn't unlock it. None of these unlock the gloriously good gift of sex within God's design. Only your wedding vows and the pronouncement of you and husband of, as husband and wife unlock this guest, gift. Only, only. It might not make perfect sense to us. You may still have questions. You may still have disagreements. But the teaching is clear. Within God's design, you do have to be fully married to have sex. So let me extend an invitation to you this morning, no matter where you find yourself, no matter what your story is, friends, one and all, if it is not there already, consider bringing your sexuality back under the banner of God's good design. Commit to his good no, trusting that he knows what is best and that he is for you, not against you. We've seen this morning over and over, I keep returning to it because I think it's so important. We've seen the incredible truth that Adam and Eve felt no shame related to their sexuality. And unfortunately, tragically, in the church, Christian messages related to sex have led with shame, have had shame in the middle, and have closed with it too, but not here, not today. God's design is too good. God's design is too beautiful to let shame rule the day. God's grace is too big. His forgiveness is too lavish. His restorative power is too effective to let shame rule the day. And ultimately, shame won't have the final word because God's Savior is perfectly perfect. Jesus. Jesus, the most fully perfect human to ever live, even though he never had sex, he came to stand in the gap created by our sexual brokenness because there is a gap, isn't there? Of course there is. But it's never a gap that's too wide that Jesus cannot bridge it with his life, death, and resurrection. And it is never a gap that is too late either. No matter what your story is, no matter what you have done, no matter what has been done to you, Jesus can bring about restoration and redemption. Friends, hear the good news this morning. Jesus came to live, die, and rise again, not just for your sin generally, though he did do that, but Jesus came to live, die, and rise again for your sexual sin specifically and reigning now. Reigning now by the Father's side in glory, Jesus offers a better way, a better life. And again, not just a better life generally, but Jesus offers a better way for your sex life specifically. He does. Do you believe that this morning? I hope you do. I pray that you do. I trust that you will. Sex is God's good idea. Let's ask him to help us live under the banner of his good design. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for these students who hung in there for 40 plus minutes listening to a message about sex, God. I pray that anything that was untrue or unhelpful falls away. But Lord, what was true, what was stated in here that was true today, I pray that it would lodge deep inside ourselves, Lord. Help us to see the errors of our ways. Help us to see where we are resisting you, rebelling against you, Lord. We do believe that Jesus came to live, die, and rise again for our sins generally and for our sexual sin 
specifically, forgive us, Lord, for we are sinners and we do sin. Restore us, Lord, we need it. Remind us of the better way that is possible. Give us the power and the ability to live within your design for sexuality, knowing that it is the better way, that it is the only way to a full life, a flourishing life, Lord. I pray for each and every one of these students here, Lord, each and every one of these staff and faculty members. Each of us has our own unique story related to our sexuality, and I don't know those stories, all of them, but they are important to you, they matter to you, and no matter what, you love each and every single person in this room so much. Remind them of that love this morning, Father. Speak it to them, whisper it to them, pounce upon them in your love no matter what. And help us, Father in heaven, to choose the good and better way, which is your design. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I want to send you with a benediction this morning. A benediction is a good and final word. It should be an encouragement to us. It should speak hope to our souls. And I've chosen uh, a benediction from one of the Apostle Paul's letters. I mentioned it earlier, 1 Corinthians. The 1 Corinthians, they had a lot of problems related to sex. And actually, the benediction is from 1 Corinthians 6.11. And the verse that I referenced earlier was from 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16. And so it's just before the verse that I talked about earlier where Paul talks about the one flesh principle. And here it is. Here's the benediction. Paul lists off some sins. He includes sexual immorality. And then he says this, And such were some of you, but you were sanctified, you were washed, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Go in peace this morning. With that truth in your mind, heart, and soul, you're dismissed. Thank you guys so much. Appreciate you.